The great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately, I did not have to think alone. And neither do we. Welcome to Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast, where all other things are never equal. Welcome to a new episode of Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast. I'm Reinhard Schumacher, and I'm joined by a second host today, Irvin Decker. Hi, Irvin. Hello. Our guest for this episode is Peter Böttke. Pete is a professor of economics and philosophy at George Mason University, the BB&T professor for the study of capitalism, and the director of the F.A. Hayek program for advanced study in philosophy, politics, and economics at George Mason University's Mercatus Center. He was the president of the Southern Economic Association in 2016 and 17, and he is currently the president of the Mont Pelerin Society. After this introduction, listeners will not be surprised to hear that Pete is an economist of the Austrian school. He has written widely on Austrian economics, often also from a history of economic thought perspective. His latest book and the topic of our discussion is F.A. Hayek, Economics, Political Economy and Social Philosophy. It has been published by Pelgrave Macmillan in their series, Great Thinkers of Economics. We are very happy to talk about Hayek, his life, his intellectual development, the historical challenges he was reacting to, and much more with Pete today. Pete, welcome to Set with Never Paribus. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's a great honor. Let's start the discussion as you do in your book. You present the idea that there are actually four different stages in Hayek's thought. They are partly reflecting historical developments. Could you explain these four stages briefly? And of course, for those listeners who are not familiar with Hayek too much, they hopefully get a bit of an introduction to Hayek by what you will say. Yeah, um, so thank you again. Um, Hayek... Um you know, was trained at the University of Vienna, and the University of Vienna, uh, not only uh, are they studying economics, but it's embedded within law, and uh, that's where the economics uh, is being uh, studied. And so Hayek always had an interest in these questions between the framework and the activity within inside the framework. That was not alien to the Austrians going all the way back to Menger, as well as to Bambavrik and Wieser, and then Schumpeter and then then Mises and 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 then Hayek and his contemporaries, and so the way I sort of describe the arc of Hayek's career in terms of his interest and where he's focused is that the original puzzle that fascinated him in technical economics was the coordination of economic activities through time. So the notion of intertemporal coordination and the idea of how it is that you. Um, uh, basically how you price goods that are remote from consumption. Um, and this is the imputation process of how I choose to engage in productive activity for hog farming today in order to be able to sell ham sandwiches uh, down the road, right? And how do I coordinate that activity? What role the interest rate plays in all of that? And so this dominates Hayek's career in the 1920s and in the 1930s, um, in which he's developing um, his own theory of the nature of the market system, as well as the difficulties of booms and busts when the market system um, is misled by the signals of intertemporal coordination. 
And so that's the first stage of his career. And then in the process of articulating his position, which forces him into opposition with both uh, the Keynesian emerging ideas, as well as the emerging ideas in market socialism, um, Hayek is led to contemplate the methodological uh, issues, philosophical issues that are preventing people from uh, understanding the points he's trying to make. Um, and that uh, forces him into a second stage of his career, uh, which is the abuse of reason uh, stage, in which he develops a twin argument. One of them is, is that economics had somehow lost its uh, focus on the institutional framework and how do we get that back and what were the methodological uh, barriers to getting that back. And then, you know, so it's both an institutional argument as well as an epistemological argument scientifically, so philosophy of science argument. <clears throat> um, and so he wants to sort of uh, develop those and he he develops those in his, his section of his life called the abuse of reason, which I date from basically the 1940 to 1960 kind of period. Um, and once he's done with that period, the ultimate book of that is his uh, book, uh, The Counter-Revolution of Science, um, in the first stage, I should have mentioned the the two books that both capture his ideas. The easiest for audience to read would be Prices and Production, and then also Individualism and Economic Order. Um, and then after he's done with the, both the economic coordination, uh, economics as a coordination problem, and the the abuse of reason project, um, he is then forced to restate what he considers to be the appropriate infrastructure for economic activity to flourish. And, and that um, is in his restatement of the liberal principles of justice and political economy. And I basically run that from in the in the story here. That's like in books like The Constitution of Liberty, but also The Road to Serfdom, as well as in the um, Law, Legislation and Liberty volumes. Um, and this is where Hayek uh, develops his more mature understanding of liberalism and the way in which the framework of a liberal society uh, sort of frames the economy that takes place inside of it. And um, and how shifts in that that infrastructure will affect institutional infrastructure will affect the way the economic system plays out. And then uh, the final stage of his career, which is roughly 1980 until he passes away in 1992, um, that I refer to as the philosophical anthropology period where Hayek is thinking about the prehistory of man and uh, the basic uh, link between our evolutionary past and our contemporary interactions in the great society. So the main puzzle there that he's trying to understand is that in our evolutionary past, we were raised in small groups uh, where we have very intimate familiarity with the individuals in our group. Our mores are founded in that intimate order, but yet for us to survive in the grand liberal order, the extended order, we have to actually have different mores than what we're hardwired to have. And so the kind of cosmopolitan liberalism that Hayek defends as the liberal order is at odds with our moral intuitions, which are grounded in these very small bands of our evolutionary past and how that tension plays out in modernity is a big aspect of Hayek. But I don't develop 
that side of the argument all that much uh, in this particular book, um, though that actually is something of future research that I hope people will pick up and run with. Okay, great. Um, Sorry for the long-winded answer to that. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think it's precisely what we needed because it provides a beautiful arc to uh, to continue our conversation. So I'd like to start with uh, the first two periods, right? Yeah. The one you call the economics of coordination problem, and then the second one, which culminates in the abuse of re reason project. And um, some people have seen in that sort of shift either Hayek's abandonment of economics or a quite fundamental shift in his thought. It's also been labeled the Hayek uh, transformation or the transformation problem in Hayek. But then on the other hand, your book is actually um, quite original and I think uh, thought provoking in that it argues that there's much continuity between Hayek and what comes before in the Austrian school, which might perhaps be, uh, be uh, expected, but also with his uh, early neoclassical peers, such as Marshall or Clark, um, and, and that there's that continuity goes all the way back to the uh, classical economists. So there's also a sense, in a sense, that there's a, a great story of continuity. And uh, you, you cite Israel Kirzner on this point, actually, to saying that what Mises and Hayek were doing in their respective contributions during this crucial decade of the 1940s was to attain a deeper insight and a more articulated understanding of what they had believed to be the shared settled principles of all modern schools of economics. So could you explain a little bit this, yeah, you call it the implicit understanding of the functioning of the market? Yeah, um, okay, so that's a great question. Um, and I apologize if my answer is gonna be a little bit, uh, uh, you know, wandering to try to tackle that question, but I think it's important yeah, for especially listeners to this podcast, is that one of the meta lessons that I'm trying to do in my book, um, because it's um, not uh, it's not really doing what modern history of economic thought does in the sense of doing social history of a thinker. Um, I'm, I'm not really doing that. I'm asking a kind of a older meta lesson, which is I'm trying to show Stigler to be wrong at some level when he argued, does economics have a useful past in which he kind of claims that uh, any ideas from the past that were good are already embedded in the moderns and that there's really no reason to go study the old thinkers. And I'm trying to argue, as my teacher Kenneth Boulding argued that, um, after, you know, in his essay, it's a great essay called After Samuelson, Who Needs Smith, that we all need Smith because Smith is part of our extended present. There's still a continuing relevance because the evolutionary potential of Smith's ideas hasn't been exhausted as an economist. And I think the same thing for Hayek. And so what I'm trying to do is, is one, address that issue. Does economics have a useful past? And my answer is yes, it does. And the second lesson, which is part of the contextualization, is does the past have a useful economics? That's um, you know McCloskey's question. Um, and I try to argue in here that the past sets the uh, does have a useful economics in the sense that we can actually resolve disputes about past historical events that matters how we resolve those disputes in the past matters for what we think is the evolutionary potential of ideas and so this is one of, this is in some sense my counter to the current 
um, sort of uh, dominant way in which history of economic thought is being done is that I think we can actually make judgments that thinkers in the past actually their ideas were played out more accurately in the historical record. Um, so if I want to understand what went on in the Great Depression, it's not just what did the different thinkers think about the Great Depression, but what was the better actual economic history of the Great Depression to tell us how to how to go there. And, and so Hayek in this sense is this key pivotal figure because he's dealing not only with the history of macro fluctuations in the uh, social democratic West, but he's also dealing with the difficulties of economic planning in the socialist uh, socialist bloc countries, right? And that the answer to those two questions about macro volatility and socialist calculation are going to be key issues in understanding where Hayek's ideas come from. Now, the question that you ask is about the continuity in that, and, and I see that in the continuity of what was uh, understood um, coming out of the classical economists, and it's not their laissez-faireness, that, that's the wrong way to, to read this, but it's the nature of what prices do and the role that property rights play in structuring incentives and guiding individuals. And the refinements that were made in the early 20th century with early neoclassical economics and the development of marginalism and and uh, refinements of tools of understanding market uh, mechanisms, those were all consistent with um, the teachings from, from classical economics, or what I call in other writings, mainline economics, um, which traces its roots to the you know, Scottish Enlightenment thinkers, the French liberals, uh, the British utilitarians, uh, the non-Ricardian exchange theorists, and then the early Austrians and early neoclassicists. I see a, a line between them. The easiest way to communicate that is that these are individuals who um, basically believe in the self-interest or rational choice postulate, and they also uh, see the invisible hand uh, mechanism at operation. But the issue is they derive the invisible hand from the rational choice postulate, not by collapsing one to the other or deny them by splitting one from the other, but instead relying on the institutional analysis. Um, and that is the institutional analysis of law, politics, and social cultural mores. And that's what the classical economists like Adam Smith does. So there's there's no Das Adam Smith problem. You explain the relationship between the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations. The same author wrote both, and there's not a disjoint between those. Um, and similarly, I would argue with Hayek. Um, I don't know if that that communicates your uh, the point to your question, but that's kind of the continuity. I think is the rational choice postulate is squared with the invisible hand proposition through the our visible hand theorem or uh, you know sort of postulate and then whatever we might call theorem in quotes but through institutional analysis and so the emphasis has to be on that institutional infrastructure and that's why the rule of law and and um, uh, basically you know the sort of nature of the banking system and the institutional environment of that um, and so you think about sound money, fiscal responsibility, um, you know, freedom of contract, uh, freedom of trade, these kind of questions all become the institutional structure within which economic activity plays out.
Yeah, and and then your story is that during the early 20th century, these these uh, in, this institutional aspect shifts into the background, and and Hayek right. starts to see it as his task to bring that back in. Right. And so what happened, and you can understand the logic of it because if you if you buy what the historicists were arguing and what the American institutionalists were arguing, they were both arguing against neoclassical economics or what was emerging as as the early neoclassical economics or the older classical economics in the German historical case, and that they were not paying enough attention to the specifics of the institutional details. And so they would highlight the in different institutional details, and then that supposedly would blow up the economic theorems that were being derived. And one way for economists to respond to that was to insist that, hey, uh, abstract you know, propositions are true independent of the institutional environment. Math is math, right? And so the example I, I think I use in the book is that you know, if I derive my, you know, my relationship between marginal costs and average costs, that's true whether or not I'm talking about a student and their test scores. And it's also true whether or not I'm talking about a firm and their processes of production, right? Is that the relationship between the averages and the marginals are always going to be the same. And it doesn't matter whether or not I'm talking about that in Chicago, Illinois, or whether or not I'm talking about that in China or in Amsterdam. Right. The relationship between averages and marginals are always going to be the same. So the math is the math independent of the institutions. And that very idea of sort of evolved as we evolved economics, we became more and more focused on this abstractness. But what that did was drain economics completely of this institutional infrastructure, because what was in the background now became forgotten. And so, you know, when I'm teaching, it's not in the book, but when I'm teaching, I often try to communicate to students. I say, write down a, a simple present value calculation, you know, just write down the formula for a present value calculation. And so now, okay, so what's involved in that, right? So there's an interest rate involved in that. There's time, you know, all these kind of things. And I say, now let's think about all the institutions that would be required in order for that calculation to make any sense. Right. So one, you have to have security of persons and property, because if I'm going to invest my resources today in order to get a yield of resources tomorrow. Right. I have to have security that I'm going to be able to claim those resources in the future. If I don't and someone can just confiscate from me, that's going to do what to my calculation? It's going to you know, change it. How about if I have not not uh, I'm having bouts of wide macro volatility? Right. How am I going to engage in that uh, um, you know, calculation? How about if we have soft budget constraints, meaning that, you know, I make a wrong calculation, but I'm. I'm going to get, you know, covered for it, right? Because I have a soft budget constraint. I don't have a hard budget constraint. So I need fiscal responsibility. So, you know, there's all these institutions that got pushed to the side and then, you know, put into the background and then from the background got forgotten. And what Hayek is saying, the only reason why you guys think that you can plan the economy or you can manage the macro economy um, in, in some way is because you're not taking into account that the way that economy operates is a function of these institutional infrastructure. And so you've pushed that aside, so you've forgotten it. So I need to bring that back 
to you. Now, why is it that you're not paying attention to that? Well, it must be that there's a methodological block from me being able to get that message across to you. So I got to think, what is the methodology that you're pursuing? And anyway, I'm talking much. That's great because it, because it really brings out why he would, why Hayek also would turn to, um, to questions of methodology and, uh, and social philosophy broadly. So, so that's the institutional part, I think, uh, of your book. Um, but you add a sort of um, element, which is only to be expected from the people who know Hayek, is that he is an epistemic institutionalist. Um, so could you explain the, the, what, what, what difference it makes to, to emphasize epistemics um, next to institutionalism rather than just... Uh, yeah, what you could call a kind of incentive institutionalism, I, yeah. I suppose. That's again another great question, Erwin. Um, so I, because th- it's not like Hayek denies that I- I- incentives matter. Okay, so one of the mantras of economists or thinkers, going all the way back to Aristotle's critique of Plato, is that incentives matter, right? So it's it's not that the incentive institutionalism isn't important. It's just it's not what Hayek considers the linchpin. And so, but let me just make one reference to your audience and then come back to this, which is this point about the institutional infrastructure within economics. That's really in Lionel Robbins's theory of economic policy. It's a fantastic book that I don't think gets talked enough about. In fact, I don't think Lionel Robbins gets this talked enough about despite the fact that Susan Housen has written like a board, uh, like a, a doorstop of a book. I mean, it's thousands, a thousand pages, right? But we don't talk enough about Lionel Robbins. I think Lionel Robbins is a major thinker and, and a very great writer. And so we should learn a lot more from, from Robbins. But his emphasis was that classical economics co-evolved with the technical economics co-evolving with the infrastructure of liberal institutions of governance. Um, and that, I think, is very important to sort of uh, wrestle with and think about. But what Hayek is trying to get at, and part of this is is brought on by his dispute with the socialist uh, uh, thinkers of the early 20th century, was that um, uh, he was trying to examine the decisive uh, criticism of what the plan so the socialist plans were about. And one of the very common assumptions that people made uh, were, uh, on the one hand, uh, the assumption was often made that once you change the base, right, you'll change the superstructure. So if you change the relations of production, you're going to change the attitudes and whatnot that individuals within that system will possess and hold. So it's an earlier kind of version of endogenous preferences, right? And so um, that's that's one way to think about uh, what uh, socialists were arguing. So the standard argument that homo economicus, uh, you know, would somehow not face the right incentive structure if you change the collective property. Well, what if I got rid of homo economicus? Yeah. Right. And now I had homo sovioticus or whatever. Right. Then how is that person going to behave? The other aspect of this is also that you could get um, like Keynes did this. So Keynes didn't make that assumption. What Keynes's assumption was, is that individuals uh, do not possess 
the same kind of rational choices. And early, in many ways, you could reinterpret Keynes, especially in his essay, The End of Laissez-Faire, which is written well before the general theory, um, that he's already poking holes in the idea that you have a rational economic man um, that, you know, can, that engages in these kind of calculations or whatnot. And Veblen also criticized that kind of person as well. And so this is all in the air. So one of the things that Hayek says is let's assume, you know, for sake of argument that individuals are rightly are motivated to do the right thing, whatever the right thing is. The question is, is how do they come to know what the right thing to do is? And so different institutional environments produce different informational signals that are part of the learning mechanism for the individual. And so the way to think about the economy in this sense is by analogy to a giant classroom. This is me talking, not I. Think about it as a giant classroom in which the students are having to process the information that's coming to them. And imagine if we were in a dark room with a, a blackboard and with black chalk and we were trying to communicate to our students and let's say that, like, you know, even make it worse that uh, uh, we have some kind of deafening noise or whatever going on in the outside world. No matter how much the students were motivated to want to learn the right way, the flows of information to them would be distorted or unavailable to them to access. And therefore, their learning mechanism would be different. So that's independent of their incentive to want to learn, right? or their motivation, I don't want to conflate incentives and motivation, but for sake of argument, let's just stick with that a second. But like their incentive to learn maybe still be just as strong, but their ability to learn is going to be affected by the institutional environment. And that was what Hayek kind of keeps on stressing. It's that the it's not so much the that the planner doesn't want to plan the economy the right way. So that's different from public choice, let's say, right, where the planner wants to maximize their own budgets. You know, they want to, the bureaucrat wants to maximize their own budget, right? Yeah. In, in Hayek's case, it's not so much that that's what's succumbing, though he understands that argument. It's that the bureaucrat doesn't have access to the knowledge to be able to uh, satisfy the problem that it's supposed to be set up to do. Yeah, and so so then the question really becomes, uh, what type of institutions generate such knowledge, right? Yeah, and 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 this also affects the welfare, because you know you know this as well as anyone. You know, Hayek says we shouldn't judge a system from some standard of perfection, right? Against and and do we approximate that perfection? But instead, we should judge it from below of what would the process look like if we eliminated the discovery procedure, right? Mm -hmm. So if we eliminate that procedure, what actually, how will they end up by doing things? And this plays out in a variety of different ways from just, you know, interventionism and dysfunction to actual, like, you know, very brutal realities of why the worst get on top for example, because if I can't rely on economic information to be able to uh, coordinate my activities, I end up by relying on political information, which, you know, ultimately in different types of forms is to concentrate, you know, benefits on on my friends, punish my enemies, and the lo you play out the logic of that. And so what I'm trying to do that's subsequently in the book when I go through that period of time when he's laying out those arguments is explain the logic 
not the sentiment about those things, but play out the logic of what would happen when you substitute out economic knowledge for political knowledge um, that you can access and, and, and how is it that that operates? And it doesn't operate um, as we might hope it would operate. Yeah. Yeah. And it, in, in a way that provides a sort of a refreshing perspective on the whole socialist calculation debate. Right. And you also see in a way his opponents taking up this line of uh, this line of reasoning. Right. Because you see Lang arguing, well, we could derive from shortages or lines in front of stores some kind of feedback. Yeah. Uh, of information of what's scarce and, and what's non-scarce. But what I also found interesting in your answer is that right on the, on the welfare front, it really appears as if Hayek favors discovery over efficiency at any point in time, right? And that puts him at, odd with, at odds with uh, quite a lot of other economic thinkers of the 20th yeah. century. It also raises a major puzzle for him. I don't do a good job resolving it you know, by any stretch of the imagination. But if you read the first volume of Law, Legislation, and Liberty, uh, you know, he begins with this difficulty between expediency and principle. And he argues that if we always make the argument on expediency grounds, the principle will always lose out. But if we follow the principle, we're going to end up by having better long-run economic outcomes. So that creates this real difficulty. Could we, this is basically his version of the, you know, tying Ulysses by the mass, right? So if we could, you know, if we could tie Ulysses to the mask and we could put wax in the sailor's ears, right, then Ulysses could both hear the sirens call, but not have the ship crash. And, but if, but at any point in time, the power of the expediency of wanting to listen to the siren's call is so overwhelming, right, that this is what will always win out is hearing the siren's call. But the problem with that is that you'll smash into the, you know, smash the ship. So how can we get the principle? So think about how difficult that argument is to make in a world of, let's say, where we want to try to improve the efficiency of government activity by doing cost benefit analysis or anything like that, because to do the real cost benefit analysis, I'd have to take into account this future self, which isn't yet realized, but I have the current expedient problem that we have. And so we always end up in policy choosing in many ways between short run relief versus long run economic growth. And we choose short run relief at the expense of long run growth because there's no real benefit in the in the long run politically, right? Because that's diffuse benefits but concentrated costs, whereas what politics is about is concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. So Yeah. But you you turn it down to, to, to politics. I would even think that there are elements uh, in, in which this this sort of fundamental dilemma really plays out regarding knowledge only in, in Hayek, right? His own sure. stance on, yeah. on tradition versus rational um, rational design is, is one of the tensions that you develop um, quite yep. extensively at the end of the book, right? And that's also, yeah. okay, tradition is sticking to certain principles, right? Say a gold standard or anything else of the kind uh, versus the uh, expediency of the moment or the attempt to rationally improve it. Uh, now and it's uh, yeah right it's um, yeah it's yeah I think that I think that you know that that's a very good point and I think that the key issue with Hayek is that he doesn't he's not a conservative so he doesn't just say we should blindly follow tradition 
this is where the philosophical anthropology of man stuff gets funky too. Um, because remember he's making a claim, which is a rather weird and bold claim that we have rules, not because we followed reason, but we have reason because we followed rules. And so, you know, okay, so now let's think about that when respect to trying to change the rules. And I, the way Hayek does this, I think it's always important to pair reading his essay, Why I'm Not a Conservative, with his essay, Errors of Constructivism, because there is this tension, as you pointed out, because he says that he wants the social scientists, the critical social scientists, to be able to question all of society's values. But what they can't do is question all of those values at once. This is a, he's making an epistemological point. They have to question only on the margin while holding other values fixed and given for that moment because we don't have this ability as social theorists to stand in this Archimedean point by which we can criticize the entire system. We can only criticize within the system, within a margin, and so on a, on a particular margin. And so I think that raises a, a whole issue about whether or not we're going to be uh, radical. You know, he is a radical liberal, radical transformation, but yet how do you do that while at the same time not committing the same problem of constructivism that you just criticize by the others? Right. And yeah, so that, indeed. And, yeah. and, 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 and what gets added to that is that the world is moving in the opposite direction from what he hopes it, it, it would move in. So yes. he is becoming further and further from the status quo. So, in fact, his own arguments start to sound more and more like a sort of radical uh, overthrow of current institutions. Yes. But, okay, let, let's, um, but I mean, I, just very quick, I think that you uh, you would be very sensitive to this aspect in the book. Uh, given your own work, because um, there is, a, you know, there's a, I don't really develop the argument in here, but I suggest an argument, which is that, as you know, there's this book by, you know, uh, Sigmund that's, you know, exact thinking in demented times, which tries to explain the Vienna circle. And that, that was one answer to the craziness of the world of the interwar continent. <laughs> and Hayek, I argue, is another answer to that. Yeah. And playing that out or teasing that out, especially since most people think the only way that you could get exact thinking in demented times is to go in the Vienna circle direction, right? That's where the dominant world went. So you have two like weird things going on. You have the world going crazy, right? Uh, this is, you know, in, in the book by Stefan Zweig, right? The, the world of yesterday. That's yeah. one of the things that really... Mm -hmm. You know, you really have this whole world tearing apart, which is the background of what Hayek is doing. At the same time, you have an answer to it, which becomes the way that most people think about the answer. And then you have Hayek's answer, which is different yet. So you have a kind of a very strange set of how do I actually think about these kind of issues when the world is going both in empirical reality far away from my ideal and in intellectual reality far away from my ideal so how do i wrestle with that yeah yeah so so his question to to many people uh, also people who are very critical of hayek is summed up uh, in the term that has been garnering um, uh, much attention lately that is neoliberalism yeah um, often associated with his work um, we we might agree a little bit on the usefulness of the term but 
for, for me, it's very much associated with the rediscovery of the framework, something you emphasize in the book. Yeah. And, and also the, the realization that many liberal policies had taken a certain stable political background uh, for granted. So it's it's kind of the equivalent to what you argue intellectually, right? There's a sort of uh, a background knowledge implicit and it's taken for granted. And when that those political institutions um, start to deteriorate, and they start to realize their importance once more. And so it's, sorry, so this brings us back to 1930s, 1940s. And um, yeah, I, I'd like you to reflect one more time on, on this, this historical period. So is, is, is your argument about Hayek there really, he, um, he at this point in time uh, brings back uh, knowledge and institutions that was lost, or is there also a sense in which he really um, sort of um, changes his position. You associated him with uh, Robbins before in our interview today. Yeah. Uh, is there a sense in which they also feel that they're breaking with the liberal tradition or would you put it uh, more in continuity there? Okay, so, I mean, there's a lot in there that's it's great. Uh, let me just say very briefly about neoliberalism that if neoliberalism is meant to mean the emphasis on the institutional framework and the the uh, liberal liberalism as understood from the Enlightenment thinkers of the Scottish Enlightenment as well as Locke and and others, then and then a restatement of that in the post World War II period, you know, yes. But if what neoliberalism liberalism is meant to be is the uh, consistent and persistent application of the tools of economic reasoning to all walks of life, right? This is kind of what Ario complains about in his book, right? Is yeah. that the neoliberalism was this ruthless effort to do that. And I think that that is true. That's the, that's the neoliberalism that's consistent with the managerial state and everything like that. And that includes, by the way, the emphasis in the managerial state of privatization, because privatization was what? It was meant to be, you know, somehow efficiency lopping off certain aspects of state action for cost savings, right? And, the, yeah. and these kind of issues. So I think we have to separate two kinds of ideas of what neoliberalism is to figure out and let alone a third one, which is just as a, uh, you know, something that we're going to whip up on because it's like bad. Everything that's bad in the world happened because of neoliberalism. But if we go back to the 40s and what you're talking about and you read the kind of arguments that, say, in the late 30s, Robbins makes in his book on uh, economic planning and the international order or Hayek makes at the uh, in his essay on interstate federalism um, or what you know Mises is arguing about and the disintegration of the international division of labor. Uh, these are all arguments uh, for in a period from 1900 to 1930, where you had rising nationalism, you had odious racial doctrines um, and whatnot. How do we reconstruct the world after that to get rid of those odious racial doctrines, to get rid of the restrictions on the flow of capital and labor throughout the world? And it was not a managerial system. It was instead, so it's not like a world trading system. So again, I, I, I think that you know, uh, Quinn Sobion's book has a lot to 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 um, uh, to uh, uh, you know congratulate him on. I mean, really interesting scholarship. It's a sincere effort and everything like that. But I don't think that um, the connections that he draws 
um, all the times between the different thinkers and subsequent post-World War II institutions of managed world trade, like the WTO or those things, have direct relationship to what Robbins and Hayek were up to. That was different uh, kind of position. And I think it's important to understand that difference because there, that kind of world trading organization idea would, sub, would be subject to the same kind of constructivist critique that the market socialism suffered from or the kind of uh, Keynesian demand management uh, issue, uh, you know, suffered from. And remember, you know, Hayek's Nobel address is not directed at market socialism. It's directed at the sort of economic apparatus as organized in, in public policy management in the West. And he starts out by saying, we've made a mess of things, right? Then in the middle, he says that, when we demand the discipline to do things that it's constitutionally unable to do, this is his epistemic critique, right? Then what we do is we actually turn ourselves into charlatans. That's that's a pretty harsh conclusion. And then he says, on the basis of our charlatanism and our constant demand to be in control, so science of understanding to a science of social control, that ends in the last paragraph by saying that if we don't fix this, we're going to be potential, you know, uh, we become tyrants over our fellow citizens and potential destroyers of the civilization. And so that's a pretty harsh indictment, but he's not talking about Soviet planning. He's talking about U.S. and U.K. macroeconomic management and microeconomic regulatory state. And the way that that has 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 gone on in that system, so and and it's not yet. So this this is to your other point. I, I apologize for being a little, because that sounds like an extreme statement. It is extreme, but you have to understand it's more subtle because it's also not laissez-faire. Hayek wanted to understand the positive program for government for a modern society. He's not an anarchist. He's not a modern libertarian. Even, you know, sort of like a Nozekian like libertarian. Uh, what Hayek is, he's a, he's a classical liberal um, in, that now wants to restate classical liberalism to regather what he calls true radical liberalism. Um, right, which is you know an evolutionary doctrine that continues to evolve through time, and what you don't want is the wooden insistence, and that's his phrase, wooden insistence on laissez-faire, because you know there's going to be points where you need a positive agenda for government to address the social ills that are, uh, 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 you know, involved. What you don't want to do is have those address those efforts to address exacerbate those social ills, right, of, of unemployment, of, of poverty, of squalor, these kind of things. You don't want to have the policies be the very thing that perpetuate those. And so how do you work through the policies so that you end up by not doing that. And that's the big question I think that he's wrestling with. Yeah. Um, but it's not laissez faire, right? No, 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 not, it's, it's yeah. no, no, no. And, and, and that, that would certainly, I, I think not even to the critics of neoliberalism, they, they have now gotten the point that the neoliberalism is not a program of laissez faire. It's, it's, it's rather a program of a quite active, uh, state that, um, facilitates this precise institutional environment that you um, 
you were talking about before and that uh, he seems to rediscover. I mean, the, yeah. the question, of course, I mean, I, I found your, your remarks on the WTO very interesting because they would seem to be something of an institutional framework or perhaps even a kind of international rule of law, um, nothing like um, actual interventions in trade patterns, but more establishing a framework in which those trade patterns can uh, can emerge. But perhaps that's something that's that's more to do with current uh, uh, trade situations than anything else. So I'd, I'd like to yeah, move on. I, a bit. I yeah, think, yeah I, 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 I don't want to belabor that point. I think that the rule that Hayek and Robbins have in their essays is they just want to sort of establish a framework where you have a free flow of capital and labor and uh, and so that becomes a very important point. Now, how do you have this sort of world that allows for the free flow of capital and labor? Because the competitive, the reason why Hayek calls it interstate federalism is remember is that he wants to invoke a sorting mechanism that competition as a discovery procedure will reveal. So if a country is following policies which are you know, not very favorable to labor or not very favorable to capital. And you think about the substitution that goes on between capital and labor, you know, what will happen is labor will migrate, capital will migrate depending on the terms. And then that forces through competition, a discovery of what the right pattern is to have economic growth. That's different from somehow setting rules by nation states to determine, you know, which is more favorable, which is not. Does that make sense? That's yeah. Okay, yeah. let's let's go back to uh, an, a somewhat more historical issue. Yeah, and that is um, <laughs> Hayek's connection to the Scottish Enlightenment. Yeah, um, right. So you you bring this out very strongly. I think it's one of the major themes within uh, contemporary Hayek scholarship. And uh, the Scottish Enlightenment, of course, itself is sort of uh, stands out as being uh, uh, somewhat more skeptical of reason, somewhat more appreciative of tradition. But one of the the things I also think it's it, it's it's really striking for is that it has little faith that um, whatever improvements uh, might be happening in society, that they also extend to human morality. Right. So this is very different from a, a Kantian Enlightenment in which yeah. uh, clearly we would have uh, improved an improved moral sense and improved moral human beings. I think you get far less of that in the Scottish Enlightenment. And you also certainly don't get it in, in the Hayek you present or the people uh, of um, the um, Virginia political economy school that, that you um, write about in the book as well. And so there notion of improvements, much more uh, an institutional uh, type of improvement, um, yeah. right? And that's also how, how they how they write about world history. And so they hope that some of the improvements in the way that human beings are able to interact and uh, able to bring about something like a great society uh, has to come from institutions. And for that, you develop in the book the idea that institutions have to be robust. Um, and you uh, trace that back to uh, Hume and the Scottish Enlightenment. Could you say something about that? Yeah, it's a, again, um, and there's a tension. Uh, so let me make sure that at the end I, I highlight the tension because, um, but you're right, what Hayek and, and, and drawing on Smith, so there's a great passage in Individualism and uh, True and False, which is the first essay in the Individualism and Economic Order book in which Hayek gets to a point about trying to explain what the whole point of Adam Smith was. 
like sums it up. Like, what is Adam Smith all about? Because he argues that people who who criticize Smith's uh, moral psychology, they're misunderstanding what Smith is about. And so he he sums up Smith and he says the whole point of what Smith was about was not. And he's contrasting with the French Enlightenment. And he says the whole point that Smith was about was not uh, to try to figure out who are the best and the brightest and put them in positions of power, but instead how we could design institutions such that bad men could do least harm if they're ever given all the reins of power. Um, so this this harkens back to, of course, Hume's uh, claim that in in uh, in designing a system of government, we must presume that all men are knaves and then build institutions that protect us against the knavery. It's important to remember in, in Hume, he's not saying that all men are knaves. He's saying that when we design our institutions, it would be wise for us to design them as if all men are knaves, because then if a knave ever got in control, they couldn't take the system down. That's the robustness point. But, but you know, uh, Hayek goes and, and develops this much further in this individualism, true and false essay, because then he argues that the entire system was to ask, take men as they are, not what we might imagine they could become. And how are men? Men are not homo economicus, right? So they're not lightning calculators. He, yeah. he distances from that. He says, uh, but they're not, you know... They're they're sometimes lazy. They're not very smart. Right. You know, he gives us through these whole lines of these things. So uh, and then he says it's the institutions that prod them to become more calculating, that become, you know, uh, more uh, attentive to, you know, taking care of their resources and all of this stuff. And he says that institution that served that purpose was private property, freedom of contract, basically the market, the liberal market society. And so that that becomes his argument for, for that. It's this institution that serves the purpose of both not allowing bad men to do harm and to um, ignite within us uh, the alertness and the judiciousness prudence to be able to do our economic activity uh, correctly. And so we have to put our, our causal explanation lies on the institutions. If you, if you think about this in a broader sense, uh, what Hayek is sort of saying is imagine the following formula that you have, you know, preferences, institutions, outcomes, and rather than, you know, saying that different people produce different outcomes, he's saying the variation is going to be in the variation of the institutions. So we fix the preferences, fix the people, vary the institutions as our, you know, our isolated cause. And then we see variation and outcome caused not by different people, but, but caused by different institutions. And that becomes a kind of a crucial issue. And that's kind of the way he sort of tells his story. That's the way Buchanan develops his Virginia school political economy idea. But then, you know, at the very end of it all, you know, they also, you know, Hayek relies on us, our ability to follow the rules of just conduct. Right. And Buchanan even goes as far as to say we have to rediscover the soul of liberalism. And in rediscovering that soul of liberalism, that requires that we become agents 
that actually want to be free, right? And 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 want to uh, you know act in the right way. And that's part of Buchanan's concern with things like the work ethic and other issues that he cared about. And so it it, it it's a kind of a fascinating thing because after all of this discussion about institutions and how institutions matter, and we just treat people as fixed and given and then vary the institutions, at the end of the day, they get back and they both look back and they say, you know, maybe it really does matter what people believe in their heart of hearts. And 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 we need to sort of understand that to understand this difference in the patterns. And so yeah. playing that yeah. out is this, you know, um, and it feeds right into, you know, the fields that you're working in slightly right because cultural cultural economy can divide it can be divided in two types of research you know the economics of culture meaning high culture low culture that kind of stuff but also the impact that culture has on uh individuals expectations belief systems actions in their in their economic interactions and it's the second one i think that you know we start thinking about if you think about the post-communist period you know you go through getting the prices right to then getting the institutions right, to then how do we get those institutions right? Well, that has something to do with culture, and we have a, we don't have very good theories of that, right? We don't really understand that. But that's in many ways how that's why the economics of religion, you know, gets now in play. And you know, think about work like Timur Koran's work on how Islamic religion shapes the institutions, and then that shapes the economic possibilities. Uh, you know, in those societies. Um, and so how do we wrestle with those questions? And I think Hayek comes back to that. And that's all part of this last part in the philosophical anthropology of man, which I don't really develop as strongly in the book, because I don't know if we have answers to the tensions in that yet. But those other arguments first in that arc that lead us through to focus on variation in institutions, that's where most of his contributions lie. Yeah. Yeah. But, but there's also a sense, right. In which you would be tempted given, given Hume, given Smith, given Hayek, that you would want to trace some kind of co-evolution, right. Between the institutions and perhaps the individuals yeah. or perhaps the, the norms and the, the culture that they share. Right. So that at least the institutions uh, have some kind of long run, uh, effect and I, I think given given their own framework and their own way of thinking about it that would certainly make a lot of sense that there's some some sense of co-evolution going on uh, which might indeed also help uh, explain some of the post-communist experience right this, sure 100 percent. Uh, this is the um there's this aspect of endogenous preferences right and and it matters. So there's a great essay by this is outside the topic of the book by uh, uh, Jeff Brennan and Philip Pettit. And it's uh, Jeff Brennan's a co-author with Buchanan. And he says, power may corrupt, but office may ennoble. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so you think about that puzzle that, uh, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Right. But yet it may be the case that being put in an office that may ennoble the individual to rise to the occasion to do things that are important. And so we can think about that in our everyday life, too. So forget the, the kings and queens and whatnot, right? But just come down to everyday life. And you think about the way, let's say just the way you and I do economics, right? And we, I'm sure we know colleagues 
who have in fact started out their careers very much interested in the same kind of questions that we are. But the incentives within the system are so strong for people to do modeling and measuring approaches, right? That they in fact shift their intellectual preferences, right? Yeah. And they do that. And we see this all the time. And no doubt, if we see it in academic affairs, we're going to see it in market affairs. We're going to see it in other things. And so what role do we play for these endogenous preferences? That's a tough thing. Is it is it really changing preferences or are we just picking up changes in behavior, not changes in preferences? I don't know. I mean, this is a again, you're right. This is this is an age old question that goes to Hume and to Smith and to to Hayek and of course Buchanan and others. Well, yes, I mean it, it, it's something I've 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 been working on a little lately, and it appears to me that right what you get in Hayek regarding rationality is an argument that a lot of the rationality actually comes from the institutions and the institutional environment, right? So right. The, the, the devices that make us smart. Yeah. So so it could be that it's not really that this something similar is true for morality. Right. So that morality doesn't really make us better people. Right. So it doesn't change the individuals much, but it changes uh, very much the the, the social norms and the moral norms. And since people don't really make all that many conscious choices. Right. But they're much more of the rule following type as he as he ends up with uh, later in his life arguing, then it could be that that that's that's the level at which we we should analyze it. Right. And then we can still hold on a bit to the stability of individuals while allowing for quite um, variation in behavior. Yeah. 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 So I like Giga Rinzer's work and the idea of ecological rationality, which of course Vernon Smith develops in his Nobel prize, which he links to Hayek. And I think that really is accurate that that's what we're all about is that uh, we are rationality in some abstract sense is omnipresent, but manifestations of rationality are context dependent. And so the way that we particularly pursue our rationality is always going to be a consequence of the framework within which we act. And the system is more rational than any one of us is rational, right? So we have system level of uh, rationality. I think, yeah, Hayek has this interesting distinction as well between, uh, you know, between systems and within systems and how we talk about those two different things. And I think that matters uh, quite a bit as well. Yeah. Okay. I want to ask something of a a question of of self-reflection. Hayek is a bit of a historian of thought himself, (laughs) according to some people, a very good one, according to some other people, a, a very poor one. He certainly seems to um, a cherry pick among the the people of the past that he discusses. But I I wonder whether there's something more to be learned than uh, a sort of critical assessment that he's merely cherry picking. Because I think I, I recognize something of an uh, of a similarity between uh, your own approach to the history of economic thought and 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 Hayek's. Is that something you've recognized yourself? Yeah, um, I, I'm laughing because. Um, I actually think Hayek is a, um, he, he does cherry pick because in many times, I mean, you know, keep in mind that he also did do real serious intellectual history work. I would say his intellectual history work on mill is, you know, not 
as prone to this as others. And sometimes when he wrote essays on particular individuals and in, that are collected, say in the um, the studies in philosophy, politics, and economics books, um, those are not. But for a large part of what he does, he is doing intellectual history as a tool for theorizing. Yeah. Right. And so he's doing contemporary theorizing and he's recruiting arguments from the past. This is part of the bolding kind of idea of how do you do contra Whig history of economic thought and not be doing just, uh, you know, uh, hagiography. Right. You're just you're, you, these are inputs into the contemporary construction of a theory and, because those ideas are part of a extended present that goes all the way back to, let's say, Adam Smith. You know, my my teacher, Jim Buchanan, used to challenge us all the time. He'd say, what more do we know about the market today than Adam Smith didn't know in 1776? Right. So, you know, and then we try to, you know, you know, refute Buchanan by throwing different things out about, you know, modern models of market competition or whatnot. And then he would like, you know, examine, he says, well, what's it ultimately about? It's, you know, about exchange and the institutions within which exchange takes place. And, you know, and then he would put the challenge to us, unless we had a very, you know, clear answer, then perhaps the emperor has no clothes, you know, kind of claim, right, that he would make to us and make us rethink these things. I think Hayek is doing something similar. He reaches back into the past his knowledge of the literature of economics that becomes part of his construction tools for building theories today goes much deeper than the last 10 years in the AER, yeah. right? Yeah. It goes all the way back to Adam Smith, and then he draws and brings that forward. And so I think you have to separate out you know, his efforts to do intellectual history, that's like the Mill book, versus his efforts to do contemporary theory construction that would be like the the pure theory of capital, right? Or his efforts to place within a philosophical context where we're wrong today, and that's more like counter-revolution of science. And not all of those exercises are equally as faithful to the task of just doing intellectual history, right? And so on a, on a moment of self-reflection, I love intellectual history. Um, I am... When it comes to pure intellectual history, I'm very influenced by the Cambridge School. So I think for intellectual history to be done right, it all it, it's all about putting ideas in context. But I also think that economics didn't exhaust all the arguments in the past and that errors in e economic selection of what ideas went forward and what ideas got discarded um, wasn't always efficient. It's not an efficient market <laughs> hypothesis when it comes to economic knowledge. And therefore, there's these $20 bills lying on the sidewalk all over the history of economics that we can reach and grab and affect the way we currently talk about economics today. And so that's more like what Skinner refers to, Quentin Skinner refers to as recruiting the past yeah. for something as opposed to understanding the past. And so uh, that's why in the beginning of the book, I kind of go at great lengths to say this is not a proper intellectual history, right, of Hayek. This is – I'm not trying to explain Hayek the man and his context. I'm trying to explain the historical context only as reference to the why he gets these different bites of the apple 
But the question is, is do those bites matter for the way we think about economics today? And I'm trying to say that it is. Um, but it's therefore it's part of a genre of history of economic thought. Um, you know, so I think the history of economic thought communities should be large enough that includes, you know, very detailed histor history of economics and also history of economic analysis. Yeah, right. And, and so yeah. the, so we have history of economics is like the sociology of knowledge, the historical context of those kind of things. But we also have history of economic analysis. And I and and that's why I said in the beginning, I'm trying to do this meta conversation between Stigler and, you know, McCloskey in which, yes, the past has a useful economics and, and yes, economics has a useful past. And the Venn diagram of that is what I'm trying to show where Hayek resides in the narrative that I'm telling um, in this. And that, that should impact the way we do economics today. Yeah. The thing I, I, I found attractive about it too is that um, right there's a book by Jeremy Shearmer that argues for Hayek himself as a research program. And yeah. the way you throughout the book connect him to uh, contemporary debates, past debates, right? There's also a sense in which it's not just a Hayekian research program, but it's a, a research program that is a contemporary economic science, contemporary political science, and not merely um, right the development of Hayek's thoughts or insights, but uh, really connecting them to um, to other theorists. Yeah. Can I say one other thing about an earlier uh, issue that you raised about Hayek's transformation? which I don't think I do well in the book, uh, but I should have. I do think there's a different emphasis in Hayek early on between, and, 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 and it, it keeps on cropping up throughout his career. And that is the differences of whether or not he's talking about the sciences of human phenomena versus physical phenomena, or whether or not he's talking about the sciences of simplicity and the sciences of complexity. Yeah. Um, as he gets older, he talks a lot more about the science of complexity. So if you read his Nobel Prize address, it's really about the science of complexity that yeah. he's saying economics has fallen short on because we're misusing the methodology. We're treating economics as if it's a simple science. And the reality is, is that it's a science of complexity. And so by trying to force fit a complex phenomena into the model of the sciences of simple phenomena, we distort economics. Whereas at an earlier time, he would have emphasized uh, the idea that we're dealing with human actors and human actors have purposes and plans. And so that's like in his essay, The Facts of the Social Sciences, um, in which you know he's making a very strong argument in that essay that the facts of the social sciences are what people think and believe them to be. In the counter-revolution of science, he emphasizes the subjectivism elements a lot. That's not emphasized as much in the sciences of complexity. That's more in the human sciences. And so his contemporary Austrians, you know, Mises earlier obviously made a big deal out of all of that. But even Machlup, like Machlup has one of my, you know, very funny essays that I love. Machlup had a sense of humor about him. And it's called What If Matter Could Talk? Yeah. And I don't know if you know this essay, but it's great. Yeah. But he basically describes, you know, a T-1000 
teacher in in biology and you know uh, or in the physical sciences giving a lecture and then all of a sudden explaining how the molecules interact and then the molecules you know screaming back no that's not how we do it you know kind of thing and he says that's economics right and so we have the same scientific attitude but our subject matter is different in the sense that we are what we study. That was a kind of older Austrian position. And Hayek really is much part of that tradition. But the emphasis on that fades when he starts making this distinction between the sciences of complexity and the science of simple phenomena. And so that's where, and you know, that's where he gets this like theory of complex phenomena, and that affects a lot of other things. And how you see the relationship between that and Hayek's transformation, I think, becomes quite interesting. Um, and I gloss over it too much in the book because I want to tell a story that um, Hayek, and this, this goes to your point about intellectual history. So if I was doing a proper intellectual history of Hayek, I would wrestle with that transformation of Hayek. But I'm trying to use Hayek to say Hayekianism can be recruited to de develop modern political economy. And so what I'm trying to do is see what can we learn from his different stages, right? From the economics as a coordination problem to the abuse of reason project to the restatement of, of liberalism. Uh, what can we learn in that as a common thread, which we can then use today for our efforts to talk about the restatement of the liberal order in the world that we live in, in the late, you know, late 20th, early 21st century kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. And so that's a different project. But um, and so I, intellectual history is a tool used in this book to help me address a problem about the future of economic research and trying to get uh, young people that are, you know, you're not going to persuade existing established academics, but young people to think like, what kind of economist do I want to be? What kind of political economy do I want to do? And I'm trying to say, look, there's a real research program here that Hayek has, uh, you know, glimpses of that you can in fact be recruited to develop and refine and go forward with. And that can be a viable alternative to the standard way in which economics is currently practiced. And it can address, you know, the issues that come about not only because of the global financial crisis, but because of the collapse of communism, because of the breakdown of the, uh, you know, uh, international liberal order with the dis discontentment with globalization. And then finally, challenge this modern rise of right wing uh, and left wing authoritarian regimes, uh, you know, populist regimes around the world that we can have a revitalized sort of cosmopolitan liberalism uh, for the future that offers an alternative to that. So in that way, I'm trying to do similar to what Lo Robbins did right before World War II in international uh, economic planning in the in the international order. Uh, I'm trying to do something at the end of the book similar to that in the uh, reconstruction of the liberal project and the promise, you know, for that project for political economy. Um, but I think this issue about the the human sciences and the and the sciences of complex phenomena that's a research project that people really should jump into with both feet and, and as intellectual historians and, and, and square that away.
Excellent. Um, I believe that's a wonderful note to end on. It's Hayek for the 21st century, uh, <laughs> as you write in the book. Yeah. Um, so let's hope that that research project really takes up. Um, Pete, thanks very much for having been part of Satyrus Never Pyrus. It was wonderful talking to you. Um, and uh, we are looking forward to your future work on Hayek. Okay, well, thank you very much. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to talk to, to you guys, and uh, I wish you continued great success with your podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back for more. The featured music is called Knowing Nothing by Midair Machine, and our intro features Paul Krugman at his Nobel Prize banquet speech in 2008. Thank you to Noble Media AB for giving us the permission to use the audio. Check out our website, cetrusneverparabus.net, for more information. Follow us on Twitter, cetrusnparabus, and listen to more episodes on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.